I know that we normally reserve the second Sunday night of the month to answer important Bible questions, but today I thought we might make an exception. I want to deal with one of the deeper Bible questions, one that I know has been plaguing many of you, and you've often wondered, what is the true answer to this deep and meaningful Bible question? The question is, who cut off Malchazir? Now, of course, you realize this is not a deep and meaningful question. But by the time we're done, it's going to be very deep and very meaningful. Who cut off Malchus' ear? Well, very interestingly, what I would like for us to do is take a look at what the Bible writers have to say about that. And I'd like for us to take it in a very logical order. Let's just begin by looking at each of the Gospels and what they have to say about the various aspects of this story. We'll just start with the very first Gospel writer. We'll start in Matthew. So turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We're going to begin reading in verse 51. In Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 51, Matthew writes about the night that Jesus was betrayed. Matthew 26, 51. Behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He'll at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then will the Scriptures be fulfilled which say it must happen this way? As we consider what Matthew tells us and the grid that we've got here on the board, we recognize, of course, that the attacker was one who is with Jesus. It doesn't give his name. The victim is just a slave of the high priest. We don't know who this is. The weapon, well, it was a sword. He pulled it out and cut off a missing, cut off the ear. The ear was missing. How did Jesus respond? Jesus rebuked him. And he told him, there in Matthew chapter 26, Verse 52, put that sword away. Don't you think that I can appeal to the Father and He'll send angels to protect me? I don't need you and your measly sword if I wanted to be protected. But I don't want to be protected because this is going to fulfill Scripture. Well, we've read one Gospel account and we still don't know the answer to our question, do we? Who cut off... Actually, it doesn't even tell us who, does it? Maybe we've got the name wrong. Who cut off this guy's ear? Let's look at what Mark has to say. Look in Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 47. In Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 47. Mark 14 and verse 47, he gives us this chronicle of the events. He says, But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out with the swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but this has taken place to fulfill Scriptures. And they all left Him and fled, they all being the disciples. What do we learn from this? Well, we still don't know the answer to our question. Who was the attacker? There's just one who stood by. Who was the victim? Slave of the high priest. What was the weapon? Well, it was still a sword. What was the wound? A missing ear. But this is very interesting. What was the response? Nothing. According to Mark, nothing happened. This guy cut off this other guy's ear and Jesus just kind of went on like nothing happened and just started talking to these guys who came out to arrest him. So now we've read two Gospels and we still don't know the answer to our very important Bible question. Let's read another one. Look in the book of Luke. This time we're going to look in Luke chapter 22. 
We're going to begin in verse 49. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 49, as Luke provides us this order of events, and remember Luke began his gospel saying that he wanted to put everything in order. Surely he is going to let us know the answer to our Bible question. He says, when those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Well, we still don't know the answer to our question. This is just a certain one near Jesus. Just some unknown disciple that's standing around Jesus. Of course, we learn from this one that all the disciples were questioning, should we fight? Remember that night Jesus had told them, you know, last time I sent you out, I told you don't take a sword, but this time you need to take a sword. And they said, oh, we've got two. And he said, it's enough. And so now they're wondering, is this it? Is this what he was talking about? We've got the swords, Jesus. Do you want us to strike them? But one of them, one of them stood out. He didn't just ask. He just went ahead and did it. And he cut off this ear of the slave of the high priest. And of course, it doesn't say with what, but we just, we're just going to imply that it's a sword. We already know that because we've read that in the other accounts, right? But this is very interesting. This account tells us it's not just a missing ear, but it was a missing right ear. And so it tells us the particular ear, and this also tells us something new. The response, not only did Jesus tell them to stop, but He healed the victim. He put that ear right back on that guy's head. Isn't that amazing? And yet, after reading three Gospel accounts, we still don't know the answer to the question that we're asking. So let's try one more and see if this is going to help us out. Look in John chapter 18. In John chapter 18. Beginning at verse 10. In John chapter 18, verse 10 says, John 18:10, Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Well, we finally have the answer to our question. Who is this guy that cut off the slave of the high priest's right ear? It's Simon Peter. The impulsive, sometimes rash disciple who's always ready to jump out front. And yet, of course, in just a few moments, is going to step behind. He's ready to fight now, and he cuts off the slave of the high priest here, but in just a few moments, he's going to even deny that he knows Christ. And yet, here he is, ready to fight, ready to die for the Messiah. Now, is this the text where we actually learn that I was right? It is Malchus here. By the way, can I just point out to you, it's not Malchus's. If if Marita's told you the title of the sermon, this is not who cut off Malchus's ear. Grammatically, when it ends with an S, you put the apostrophe at the end. It's Malchus. I've got that right. Just so everybody knows, that's not a typo. Marita and I have been arguing about that all week. The weapon. It was a sword. The wound, it was a missing right ear. And the response was Jesus rebuked him and told him to stop. Said this is going to fulfill Scripture. Now, you all already knew the answer to this question, didn't you? I haven't just revealed anything to you. Maybe there was one or two that haven't read the story before, but when I asked the question, you knew. Well, that was Peter. We all know. Peter cut off Malchus here. Well, I hope you recognize that I'm not nearly so daft as to think that I was the only person that really knew the answer to this question. This has actually been an exercise. An exercise that's supposed to illustrate some points to us about how to read and how to study our Bibles. Here, of course, was a very simple Bible question, but not all of our Bible questions are nearly so simple as this one, are they? 
And so as we consider this exercise that we've just gone through, as we've answered the question, who cut off Malchus' ear, the main question that we need to be asking is, what do we learn about this, or from this, about studying our Bibles? What do we learn about answering Bible questions? The very first thing that we learn, and I hope you recognize this, this may be a no-brainer, this may seem just absolutely obvious, but the very first thing we recognize is, if we're going to answer Bible questions, we need to use the Bible. Don't use your memory of what you think the Bible says. Don't use what you heard the preacher say. Don't use what you've learned in Bible class all your life. Go back to the Bible. Now, I'm certain that as simple as our question was about who cut off Malchus here, you could rely on your memory that it was Simon Peter, and we probably all got that one right without opening the pages of our Bible. We didn't have to get all the way to John to know that. But most of the Bible questions that we're really concerned about are not nearly so easy, and they're not nearly so simple. They're far more complex. And our minds can play tricks on us. We all seem to believe that we have great memories. Now, don't lie to me. I know you'll say you can't remember people's names. But boy, I tell you what, get in an argument with somebody and you can remember what they said five years ago exactly, can't you? We all think we've got good memories at times. But when it comes to what the Bible says, we shouldn't rely on our memories of what we might have read sometime before. Because our mind will make connections and we'll put together two and three passages and not ever even realize it and cause it all to mean exactly opposite of what it said. By putting together passages and mixing and matching who said what and what they said and why. So don't trust your memory. Go back to the Bible. Use the Bible to answer Bible questions. Somebody asks you a question, don't just spout off what comes to your mind. Tell them, you know what, I don't have a Bible here with me. Let's get together and study that sometime. Or if you do have a Bible, say, that's an awesome question. Let's open our Bibles up and take a look at the answer to that question. But number one rule, always use the Bible. Number two rule that we've learned from answering this question about Malchus here. Use all the Bible. Consider all that the Bible says on this topic. Very interestingly, if we had just asked this very simple question and we'd gone to the book of Matthew to find out who cut off this slave of the high priest here, we wouldn't have even known his name was Malchus and we'd still have no idea. We would just sit back and say, well, it was one of those folks who was standing near Jesus, one of his disciples, but we don't know which one. It wasn't until we had looked at everything that the Bible had to say about this issue that we could really legitimately answer the question. And with all Bible questions that we ask, we need to consider all that the Bible says about that topic. Otherwise, we're not going to answer the question correctly. Because, rule number three, we need to allow the Bible to interpret itself. And if what we do is we just grab one passage out of context, we can mistake all kinds of things and make all kinds of errors. Because there are statements that are made in the Bible that by themselves do not teach the entire Bible truth. We have to realize that God gave us the entire Bible. He didn't just give us one verse or one sentence. And every statement that's made in the Bible is made with the understanding that the rest of the Bible is there to help us understand it. We've got to allow the Bible to interpret itself. Can you imagine somebody getting into an argument over this question? And they've got their Bibles open to Matthew chapter 26, 
And I'm arguing with James here, and James has got his Bible open to John chapter 18, and he's saying, look, Edwin, it was Peter. And I'm saying, now James, come on now, look at Matthew. Here's what it says. Just one who stood near. We can't know. And he says, no, but look at John. I said, I'm not worried about John. Look at what Matthew says. Can you imagine us having that kind of argument? Or could you imagine me arguing with Charles here and saying, now look, Mark. Mark pointed out that Jesus didn't do anything. Jesus didn't care that this guy got his ear cut off. Look at it. He just started complaining about these people bringing the swords and the clubs instead of coming to the temple. And Charles says, now, but wait a minute, Edwin. Look at Matthew. Look at Luke. Look at John. He rebuked the disciple. He healed the guy. But I'm saying, no, look at Mark. He didn't do anything. Can we imagine that kind of argument? That would be foolishness, wouldn't it? And yet that's exactly the kind of arguments that people have all the time about all kinds of Bible questions. They'll pull out the verse that suggests what they want to believe, and then when somebody shows a verse that mitigates it and affects it and changes it, they don't want to accept that one. I want you to remember what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 33. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 33, the Bible says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. There are a lot of things that confuse us. There are a lot of things that we might argue about. But it's not God's fault. It's our fault. Because we're not putting all that the Bible has to say together and figuring out how all those passages together make sense. We shouldn't lob Bible verse grenades at each other as though one verse contains all of the Bible truth. Rather, we should see what all the verses together mean. And it's very simple with the story of Malchus here, wasn't it? We recognize that they came to arrest Jesus while he's there in the garden. Judas was there. He betrayed him with a kiss. And within that time span, the disciples said, hey, should we strike with the sword? But Peter jumped up and pulled his sword out and cut the right ear off of this slave. And Jesus rebuked him, told him to stop, put that sword up. Don't you know that I can be protected by somebody greater than you? And then he grabbed that ear and he put it right back on Malchus's head. And then he started rebuking those soldiers for coming instead of doing something in the open. It all fits together. And we're not going to argue one of these verses against each other. We're going to figure out how the whole story fits together. And that's exactly what we need to do when we answer Bible questions. But of course, this is probably nothing new to most of you. And so now we're going to pull a switch again because really, this sermon is not about who cut off Malchus here. And this sermon is not about just how to answer Bible questions. This sermon is actually about one particular Bible question. And that question is how can I be forgiven? Now, I recognize in a very real sense when we consider forgiveness in its largest scope of Christian growth and spiritual maturity, what we would need to do if we were going to look at all the Bible has to say about it is begin at Genesis 1-1 and read all the way through Revelation chapter 22 and verse 21. We're not going to do that. Because what I'm really focused on this morning is the very specific issue of how do I become a child of God and receive that forgiveness initially. We need to remember our three rules. We're going to use the Bible to answer this question. Secondly, we're going to consider all that the Bible says, not just pull out our favorite verse on the topic. And thirdly, we're going to allow the Bible to interpret itself. How does it all fit together? How do each of the verses affect one another? We're not going to argue verses back and forth. We're just going to put them all together. And we're going to begin by noticing in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 23. 
In Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 23, the Bible says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. If we're going to be saved, it's going to be by God's grace. We can't earn it. We've sinned. We've fallen short of His glory. And there's no way that we can overcome that. You and I cannot go to church enough. We cannot teach the gospel enough. We can't do good deeds enough. We can't put enough money in the plate to save our souls. It just can't happen. If we're going to be saved, it's going to be because God has been gracious to us and He has bestowed His mercy on those of us who are unworthy and given us the free gift of salvation. However, also notice Romans chapter 9 and verse 15. Romans chapter 9 and verse 15. God described His nature. And in Romans chapter 9 and verse 15, that quotes from Exodus where He said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. This tells us something about this grace that God is going to bestow that produces salvation. He gets to decide who receives the grace. He's going to give the grace and the mercy to whomever He chooses. And we can't argue with Him about that. Now, this tells us something. Salvation is by God's grace, but certainly not everyone is going to receive God's grace in the salvation. So we've got to dig a little bit deeper because we don't want to just know that it's by God's grace. We want to know who are the folks that He's going to give it to because I want to be one of those people, right? And so we begin to look a little bit further and we find another passage that deals with this issue in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, Paul said this, For by grace you have been saved. We already knew that, didn't we? Romans chapter 3 told us that. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Salvation is a gift. We already heard that too. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We already got that part, but notice something here. By grace through faith. God's grace is going to save us, but who's going to receive the grace? Those who have faith. I cannot expect to receive God's grace if I don't believe. That's something I have to do. Because God will only bestow His grace to those who believe on His Son. We could stop there, but we wouldn't read everything that the Bible has to say about the salvation, about the grace and the faith. So flip over to James chapter 2. Because James chapter 2 is a very interesting passage as it talks about faith and defines the saving faith. As we learned in last week's lesson about faith being the victory, we recognize that there are different kinds of faith. So what's the kind of faith that saves us? James chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, and yet you don't give them what's necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of works, faith was perfected or completed or made whole. 
What do we notice here? God's grace is what's going to save us, but it's going to save those who have faith. But what kind of faith? It's a working faith. A faith that surrenders our lives to Christ and does His will. It's not just a mental ascent. It's just not a mental recognition of certain facts and beliefs. It's believing it so much that we trust God and trusting God so much that we surrender ourselves to Him, doing what He says, working with our hands the works of God. And so, who's going to receive this grace? Those who have a completed faith, a whole faith, a faith that is not just of the mind and the head, but also of the heart and the hands. Well, what kind of things have we got to do to be working these works of God? Well, let's notice what Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1 says. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1 connects something with faith. In Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1, the Bible says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Notice what it has connected with faith. Repentance. He says, now that's the foundation. That's the foundation we laid to you. In other words, repentance and faith go along as the fundamentals, the foundation for our life in Christ. He says, you've got to repent of dead works. Keep in mind, we've got to have a working faith. So what he points out is if you're going to have a working faith, you've got to stop those dead works, those evil works. We've got to repent. Look in Luke 24 and 47. In Luke chapter 24 and verse 47. Luke chapter 24 Verse 47, at the end of that gospel, as Luke provides his accounting of the Great Commission, he says in Luke 24 and 47 that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Repentance is for what? It is for the remission of sins. If we want our sins forgiven by the grace of God, we've got to have faith. But it's got to be a working faith. And one of the workings that we must do is repenting of dead works, laying that foundation in our life. But that's not all the Bible has to say about it. Look in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. The Bible in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says... If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. What working must we do along with our faith to have a working, completed faith? We've got to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that God raised Him from the dead. We've got to be saying those things with our mouths and with our lives. Jesus said, if we deny Him before men, He'll deny us before His Father. But if we confess Him before men, He will confess us to His Father. If we want to be saved, it's going to be by God's grace. We can't earn it. But God says, I'm not giving my grace to just everybody. I get to pick and choose who I'm going to give it to. Who am I going to give it to? He says, to those who have faith. But not just any kind of faith, a working kind of faith. And what kind of things must our faith be working to be completed and whole? We've got to repent of our sins, turning away from the dead works. We've got to confess our faith in Christ. But look in Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16 and verse 16. In Mark chapter 16 and verse 16. 
In Mark 16, 16, Jesus said in Mark's account of the Great Commission, Go to all the world, preach the gospel to all creation. Verse 16, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. But he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Now, I know there are a lot of people that look at the last half of that verse and they try to make that first half mean that, oh, it just says if we disbelieve, we'll be condemned. So that means we don't have to be baptized. Well, I'm just going to tell you. If you want to know how to be condemned and go to hell, then focus on the last half of that verse. But if you want to know how to be saved and go to heaven, then look at the part of the verse that tells you how to be saved. And what's it say? He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. But we need to keep in mind that this baptism is not just any dunking under the water. It's not just any immersion. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, the Bible demonstrates that Bible baptism is for a purpose. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. I want you to notice that. This is not saying as long as you believed at some time, as long as you got dunked under the water at some time, you're all right. It says if you believe, and based on that belief, you confessed your faith, you repented of your sins, and you were baptized in order to receive the forgiveness of sins, God will give you His grace. Your sins will be forgiven. Of course, we look at this, and this is all kind of confusing. How does it start off with God's grace, and then we come down here to these things that we've got to do, that we've got works that we have to do? I mean, if it's by God's grace, we've already said, I can't do anything to earn it. So why are you telling me I have to do something at all? Not because that's what God said. But we can bring all this together, I think, when we look at passages like Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12. Powerful passage. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12. The Bible there says, Having been buried with Him in baptism, Colossians 2.12, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. Now, I want you to just think about this for a minute. When we believed in Jesus, and when we confessed our faith, and when we repent of our sins, and when we're baptized for our sins, who is doing the work that accomplishes salvation? Us? That's not what this verse says. This says that we're having faith in the working of God. When I believe in Christ, when I confess Christ, when I turn away from my sins because I believe Christ, when I'm baptized for the remission of my sins, I am not doing any work that earns my salvation. I am not doing any work that accomplishes salvation on my own. Because who does the work that accomplishes salvation? Paul said, having faith in the working of God. God is the one who's working my salvation, not me. But notice when He does it. When I believe, and based on that belief, I obey. And because I have faith in the working of God, I believe I'm saved. That's grace. Given to those who are faithfully obedient. But you see, when we're done with all of that, and we've faithfully obeyed. We have not somehow earned 
our salvation. God has given us salvation. And we have received that for which we were unworthy. Look in Luke 17. Luke 17, beginning at verse 7. Luke 17, beginning at verse 7, Jesus tells this parable. Which of you, having a slave, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he's come in from the field, Come, immediately, sit down and eat. But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you say... We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. When we're done with all this faithful obedience, we cannot turn to God and say, Now you owe me. We haven't earned it. We have simply done the things that we should have been doing all our lives. And the fact that we are starting to comply now does not pay for the times when we did not comply before. If we're going to be saved, it's going to be by God's grace. But God has said that He's not just going to give His grace to anybody. He's going to give it to whom He chooses. Who's He choosing? Those who believe. And those who, because of their belief, complete their faith with obedience and works, repenting of their sins, confessing their faith in Christ, being baptized for the remission of those sins, and continuing on steadfastly, recognizing I'm an unworthy slave. I'm just doing the things I was commanded. Continuing on, striving to grow in Christ. Now, remember how foolish it was for James and I to be arguing about who cut off Malchus' ear and for Charles and I to be arguing about how Jesus responded? One of the things that most amazes me is that we've got these passages right here. And there are others that say these very same things. And what happens today is that instead of looking at these passages and wondering and and saying, how do all these go together? There are going to be some people that they're going to grab a hold of Mark 16, 16, and they're just going to lob that one in in Acts 2.38 and argue about baptism. There's others that are going to go back to Romans 10, 9, and 10, and they're going to go back to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and they're going to lob those in, and they're going to fight those back and forth. But here's my question to you. Which of these passages up here is right? They all are, aren't they? So which of them do we need to follow if we want to receive forgiveness? All of them. There's no sense arguing them back and forth. We just need to submit to them if we want to have our sins forgiven. That's how we answer Bible questions. And that's the answer to this. Very important. Bible question. 